Well, for those who may be a little more, uh, more comfortable or, or should say knowledgeable of the uh, church calendar, you probably realize that we are in the season of Lent. Uh, we're moving toward the end of Lent. Uh, Lent is simply a uh, time on the Christian calendar that was set aside actually way back to the early church, third century or so. It was a time of fasting, a time of preparation uh, that was really meant to be a season of reflection and repentance and recommitment uh, during the weeks that lead up to Good Friday and then, of course, into Easter Sunday. And the purpose, of course, was it was modeled after the 40 days in which Jesus went into the wilderness and went through the trials and temptations. And then the Bible says that he came out of that experience empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the early believers would take that season intentionally to kind of press into God with prayer and fasting and with their desire to be to be renewed in their spirit, to be drawn closer to the Lord and realigned with God's will for their lives. Now, over the centuries, we know the spirit of Lent kind of got lost. Uh, for example, you have traditions like Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. And what that basically has become is this last fling, you know, before, there's, uh, before we enter into this season of fasting or abstinence. And, of course, there's, sometimes it's called Carnival, and Carnival just means farewell to meat. You know, so it just means no more food. So, so really, both of those events have this negative connotation of just this idea that it's a season in which we have to refrain from all the good things. Now, you may have come up through a tradition where you observed Lent, but you looked at more as a season for dieting. I don't know how many ladies I've met who were observing Lent and they were giving up chocolate, you know, or giving up sweets or sugar. It kind of seems self-serving, but, uh, but for a lot of people, it just kind of became that thing. And so it was this season that was associated with fasting that was about refraining rather than being what it was intended to be, which was a season where God would bring a new release, of his presence and his power in believers' lives. I want to talk to us this morning about what I call a grace gift, or this grace gift of fasting that really has been largely ignored in the Western church today, but I'm convinced it is absolutely key to so much of what God wants to release in our lives and key to what he wants to do in a congregation and also key to what our spirit is longing for in the Lord. Now, before I do that, I just want to lay a bit of a foundation that's going to tie into the subject of fasting, but I think it's important that we understand. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now, may the God of peace and harmony set you apart. May he make you distinct. Making you completely whole, nothing lacking. And may your entire being, we say that word, entire being, spirit, soul, and body, be kept completely flawless in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to ask the, an average person, what, define our entire being, most people would say, well, it's body, soul, and spirit. That's what would come to mind first. And the reason is because the body, the physical, is so prominent for many people because that, of course, is what we see first, and so it becomes the most important thing. But God has revealed in his word to us that we are comprised of three parts. Our entire being is made up of three parts, and that, first of all, is our spirit, he says. Spirit is first. It's your spirit that is capable of hearing God's voice. It's your spirit that is capable of walking with God. Your soul, of course, is that part of you that's comprised of your mind and your will and your emotions, your feelings. That's all part of, of your soul. And your body, of course, is, is made up of your physical, uh, tactile abilities, your touch, smell, sight, hearing, and so on. All those things, your soul and your body, are made to be able to interact in this physical world in which God has placed us. Our body obviously is needed to get around. Our body has certain functions and desires. Our soul, the emotional part of 
us, of course, is we connect with people, we relate, and so on. But our spirit is the part of us that is to take prominence in our lives according to this order the Lord has given us, and our spirit is the only part of us that speaks to God. Now, in the first diagram I I have here, you can see that before you know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that your spirit, it is dead to God. You have a spirit. It's going to live forever, either with God or without God. It depends on your choice that you make in this life. But your spirit uh, is dead to God before you know Jesus Christ. Your soul, that emotional part of you, is there, but it's very self-focused. And your body, of course, is there, but it's mostly controlled by your physical cravings. For example, we know in our Western culture that we don't eat to live, do we? We live to eat. Right? We absolutely live to eat. It's constantly on our mind. Paul said to the Ephesians, speaking of those who don't know Christ, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from what? From the life of God. Not just from God, but from the very life of God. Now, in this next diagram, we see that when we are born again, your spirit comes alive to God. Your soul becomes kingdom-focused. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And your body becomes disciplined. Your body is able to live the way that God has made you to live and find fullness in his design. Uh, Paul says to the Colossians, you were dead because of your sins. Then God made you what? He made you alive with Christ, for he has forgiven your sins. So when we talk about our spirit, soul, and body, we're not talking about one necessarily being better than the other. All those have been created for us by God. They all serve their purpose, but it simply has to do with us bringing those things into proper alignment. It has to do with learning how to bring our body and our emotions with all of their needs, all of their desires, all of their cravings, all of their impulses, bringing all those things under control or submission to our spirit So that we can be fully alive to God and we can live the way that he has intended us to live. Now, if your car is out of alignment, how do you know? Driving along, take your hand off the wheel, it begins to go one way or the other. In the same way, our spirit, the same as as is true of our entire being, if our entire being is out of alignment, if we don't have it in the proper order that God has created, then we will find that regardless of what our spirit's desires may be, we will always be pulled one side or the other. We will always be frustrated. Paul talked about that, the things that I know I should do, I don't. The things I shouldn't do, I find myself doing. He says, who's going to save me from this? But he says, I thank God it's through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's how. That's how it's abiding in him. And so that power is there for us, but we have to recognize that order that God has placed there. In the next diagram, we see that your spirit is the only part of you that hears the voice of God. It's the only part of you that desires the presence of God and that can communicate with him. That's very important to understand. Why? Because God has designed us in such a way that is our spirit that receives from God. That's why Paul said in another scripture, he said, the things of the spirit you can't understand with a natural mind. The things of the spirit are spiritually discerned. It's your spirit only that can communicate with God, that can understand the things that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And then what does your spirit do? Your spirit takes what God is speaking to you, what he's showing you, and you teach your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed in your mind, right? Jesus said, by the washing of his word, we are cleansed and renewed. 
And so the Lord wants us to understand that if our spirit is in the place that it should be, we will hear from him, and then we are able to bring in under control our feelings, our emotions, our physical cravings, whatever it may be. How many have experienced, and don't be ashamed to raise your hand if you did, because I'll raise my hand too, how many have experienced certain cravings, whatever it might be, it could be some physical craving, it could be lust, it could be anger, it could be, you know, impatience, whatever, and even in the midst of that craving, you heard a still small voice saying, no, 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 turn to me, submit to me. No, that's not the way to go, right? But depending on how you're lined up will determine the outcome. If you're lined up this way, you'll find strength and wisdom to resist and continue to walk in freedom. As we'll see in just a moment, if it's not in this order, you're going to see that you're always living a frustrated spiritual life. You're saying, where is this abundant life Jesus talked about? I don't get it. I don't see it. It's available to you just like it is to every other person you see walking in the Spirit. It all depends how you choose the choices you make that determine how you are lined up in your entire being. Next diagram. Not only is it only our spirit that desires God and hears his voice, it's also our spirit that is the only part of us that has protection from the powers of darkness and the strategies of the enemy. Paul says in Ephesians, we know it well, he says, put on all of God's armor so that you may be able to stand firm against all strategies and tricks of the devil. The armor of God protects your entire being when and only when your spirit is in control. Only when your spirit is given prominence in your life and is in touch with the Holy Spirit. Because without your spirit being in the place it ought to be in, your mind and your emotions and your physical body are easy targets for anything the devil wants to sow into you, the hooks he wants to get into you, and the way he wants to manipulate you. You see, if you're not in that order, you are going to be open to a lot of problems. That leads us to the next diagram. The problem for most of us is not that God's word is not true. It's not that God is not faithful. It's not that the Holy Spirit is not able to give us victory. None of that is true. The problem for most of us is that before we came to know the Lord, we were so used to living in the flesh. We were so used to living just like the spirit of our culture says to live, to act, to talk, whatever it may be. And so the problem is when we get things out of order, we find that we automatically default to the natural way of thinking to the natural way of behaving. You see, if the Holy Spirit ever convicts you and your first response is, but you're walking in the flesh. You see, I've said this many times, but your spiritual maturity is determined by one thing. It's not how long you've been in church. I think you know the answer. Exactly. How quickly do you respond to the Holy Spirit? That's the measure of your maturity. How quickly do you say, yes, Lord, I'm sorry. Yes, Lord, you're right. I'm not giving my, my, myself to that. You're right. And you continue to walk in freedom. That is the measure of your spiritual maturity. And so when we live at the soul level, your emotions and feelings only, or you live at the physical level of just doing what your body wants to do, then we become controlled by our natural thoughts and feelings and our physical desires. And when that happens, as you can see in this diagram, either God's words cannot get through to your mind and his strength does not get through to your spirit, but it becomes overpowered by your physical desires. And so you had this constant frustration of, oh, I, I want to, I want to, I want to, but why can't I ever get a handle on this or get victory in this? It's because things are upside down. And again, your ability to hear the voice of God has nothing to do with how much time you've served in church. 
It has nothing to do with how long you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Your ability to hear the voice of God is totally dependent upon your willingness to walk in proper alignment with the Holy Spirit. Entirely based upon that. I know believers even in our church. They've been saved three or four years, and they are leagues ahead in the things of the Spirit from people who've been in the church 40 years. Because there's a, a hunger, there's a thirsting there after the Lord. There's, there's a submission right away when the Holy Spirit talks about stuff. They don't mess around with stuff. They haven't become churchified. They're followers of Jesus Christ, and there's ongoing maturity in their life. You see, spiritual warfare, very simply, is the devil trying to overwhelm your spirit. And the way he tries to overwhelm your spirit is with physical and soulish or emotional thoughts and feelings. That's spiritual warfare. He wants to do whatever he can to knock you off the game of abiding in Christ, of walking in the Spirit, of giving your spirit prominence with the Lord. Spiritual growth, on the other hand, happens when you stay in alignment. When your spirit is prominent in your life, when you feed your spirit, you cultivate your spirit, you grow in the spirit, and you walk with God, sensitive to his Holy Spirit, when that happens, you grow. And you know why you have victory then? Because your spirit is what can contend with the spirit of darkness. Your flesh has no hope. Your emotions, your feelings, he will play with you all day long and laugh all the way, watching you getting tormented, making wrong decisions, making a mess of your life. But when you allow the spirit, your spirit to rise up and connect with the spirit of God, then he's afraid. Because greater is he that is in you than the one who comes against you. He knows that. He knows the only way he can defeat you is to get you off of the spirit and into your flesh. And once you do that, you are easy game. He's been doing it for thousands of years. You are no contest. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, God finds no pleasure with those who are controlled by this flesh. But when the Spirit, you see, the Lord always tells you what the real story is. But he gives you hope. He's saying, this is what it's like, but it doesn't have to be this way. The Lord takes no pleasure in those who are controlled by the flesh. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because when the Spirit of Christ empowers your life, you are not dominated by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Then he says later in verse 14, all who are what? Who are led by the Spirit of God, who hear the Spirit, who obey the Spirit, who walk with him in simple obedience, day by day, decision by decision. These are the children of God. These are the sons and daughters of God. You see, I believe that people are supposed to be able to look at you and tell that you're a child of God. I just think it's that simple. What were the disciples recognized as? Those who had been with Jesus. Right? If we're a disciple, those who had been with Jesus. I believe people are, are, should be able to look at us and know that we are being led by something other than our emotions. Other than our physical drives. Other than the spirit of this world. The spirit of this culture. Or more specifically, by someone. They ought to be able to see that we live from a different dimension than those who don't know God. As I often say, we're not better than, right? We're just better off. There's no pride in that. I don't mind saying I'm a lot better off. I know where I'm going. I know who lives in my life. I know the difference Jesus makes. I'm a lot better off with Jesus than I ever was without. And so will you be. And so they ought to be able to see that. that there's something different about those uh, from us that those who don't know God. And there also ought to be something different about you than those who are not led by the Spirit. But who profess to be believers. And may well be. Well, I could say a whole lot more on this. I'm going to put my thumb there and kind of get back to our topic. Just wanted to lay that by way of a bit of a foundation. But you might be asking, what in the world does this have to do with fasting? You see, the essence of fasting is that it's one of the primary means 
by which God allows our spirit to rise up within us and to take back control of our lives. To bring our spirit back into that place of prominence so it's able to steer our entire being in the ways that God has for us. That is not a restriction. It's actually the means by which God brings release. He brings a release from the things that just clog our lives so that our spirit is prominent. He brings a release of his life afresh in us. He brings a release of the gifts of his Holy Spirit flowing through us. You see, what you discover is when you learn to fast and you begin to move in fasting is that a spiritual sensitivity begins to return to your life. You'll discover that your appetites begin to change. You'll discover that you begin to believe the truth. You see, the, the spirit of our culture says this, that if you're pure, then you're prudish, right? Purity is prudishness. I mean, people mock, for example, today virginity, right? Say you're a virgin, they just laugh at you. I like what Josh McDowell said, McDowell said about 30, 40 years ago. A young lady came to me and said, I'm a virgin and people mock me. My friends, these girls, are always laughing at me because they think of something I should just throw away. He said, you tell them this. You tell them, I can be like you anytime I want. But you can never be like me. Isn't that wise? You've given it away. You see? God wants us to understand that purity is not prudishness. Purity is power. The power is not in how high you jump, how loud you shout. Power flows simply through a pure life. That's all it is. And that's why Jesus wants us to be in this proper order. He wants that purity in our life, and he wants us to protect it. He wants us to understand the order in which he's created us, spirit, soul, and body, and he wants us to protect it. He wants us to guard that. He wants us to guard his anointing that he wants to flow through our lives. Why do we do that? Because we want to cleanse ourselves. You see, when fasting is a regular part of your life, you'll find that you won't be able to just watch anything on TV anymore. I, I can't get on, on rabbit trails here. I know where time is going to go. I was saying to Vanessa the other night, we were watching a program. I think it was Friday night. It was on Netflix. We started to watch it. Kind of, we, we like the, the mystery ones, detectives or whatever, you know, solving the crime, solving the mystery. And uh, we were about 30 seconds in, and we realized this was going to be a transgender promo. And hear my heart, I love transgender people. That's not the issue. But you see, in the book of Romans, Paul lists a number of things that really are indicative of when a culture is becoming increasingly dark and confused and broken. And he lists those things, and he says, in that time, he says, not only those things become prominent that people practice them, but people also approve of them. Now, to me, you know, growing up, I thought, that doesn't make sense. If they practice, of course, they approve. But when you delve into the word in the Greek language and, and the, the idea of approve, what it's saying is this, is that there's a time in every culture because it comes in waves. Revival, awakening, renewal comes in waves and then decline and, and spiritual coldness and so on and, and back into sin. And what happens is that those things are always practiced to some degree in a culture. There's always dark corners, underbellies, whatever, you know, things that take place in our culture. But there's times when, those, when there's a sense in the culture that, that those aren't right. And so people tend to stay in the closet, so to speak, Right. And so what happens, Paul is saying, is that eventually, over time, those things come out. And they're not only practiced openly, they're not only increasingly accepted by a culture that continues to bring that decay into the culture, but here's what it means by approve. 
it means that culture gets to the place of depravity where not only does it allow these things to happen, and by a lot, you know, get too far off track here, but those very things that are deplorable to God, and why are they deplorable to God? Because they destroy lives, and God loves people. They break down lives. But those, the society comes to a place where those things actually become the society's entertainment. That's what he means by approve. And so Vanessa and I were watching this program, and 30 seconds in, we said, no. No, no, no. Great story, probably, but we're not going to allow ourselves to be entertained by this. Now, you say, Paul, that sounds awful bigoted. No, no, hear my heart. You see, the devil wants to twist around the heart of God. Here's why I want my heart to be sensitive to whatever lifestyle it may be, where there's brokenness, perversion, whatever. You know, fornication, if you're shacked up, if you're living together, homosexuality, the Bible lists all of that, all different kinds of, of, of variations other than what God has intended. What God sees when he looks in most lives, he just sees brokenness. He sees the enemy at work, deceiving, lying, tricking people up, using brokenness, using past things, whatever the case may be, bringing confusion into lives. You see, whatever I allow myself to be entertained by, I become desensitized to. And the problem with being desensitized, desensitized to it is not just that I think it's okay. The problem is, as a child of God, is I begin to lose my edge. I begin to lose the heart of God. I begin to lose the burden for the brokenness of people who are trapped by sin. And so whether it's as a preacher or as a Christian in the marketplace, I stop praying for people that the Lord says need to be rescued because, well, I guess it's okay after. You hear what I'm saying this morning? It has to do with me maintaining the heart of God that seeks out and saves those who are lost, who's come to heal the brokenhearted, who's come to restore, who's come to rescue and bring wholeness into our lives. That's what the Lord wants to do. And so if I'm not careful what happens over time, is that I allow these things to entertain me. One of the things you'll find fasting will do, it'll begin to hone your spirit again. It'll begin to show you things where you've gotten sloppy, you've dropped the ball, you've grown accustomed to sin. There was a time in Israel's history, for example, where these things were rampant. And God said to them, his criticism was this, he said, you have lost your blush. Nothing embarrasses you anymore. I saw a bumper sticker years ago It said, I used to be horrified, now I'm just amused. You see, that describes our culture, but it describes the church as well. And the reason why we can't let that spirit get a hold of us is because we have to be a people whose hearts still break for anyone who's far from Jesus. We can't allow our theology, our belief to be, uh, become cold, indifferent, because Jesus says uh, no one's guaranteed time. We need to see people come to Christ before they meet him one day, and also just because of the beauty that he wants to bring into our lives. So when you fast, you discover there's just certain things you don't watch anymore. You'll also discover that there's some friendships that even begin to change because, frankly, you just get tired of gossiping. You get tired of criticizing. You get tired of being around people who are complaining. And you want to begin to find people who actually have life and hope and faith. Why? You're cleansing yourself. That's what a fast is. Understanding this morning, saints, fasting is not a hunger strike. That's not what it is. You're not trying to convince God of anything. Fasting is feeding your spirit because your spirit has been designed to house the presence of God. That's what you get to get in on, to house the presence of God. Your spirit longs for God to fill you and control your entire being. I mean, be honest. Aren't you tired of being dominated by the flesh? Anybody? Yeah. I mean, aren't you tired of just wishing things could change? Just wishing, you know, what you, you come to church and you feel the presence of God and, oh, I wish, I wish. What's that? That's, just, that's, just, that's not just some kind of lofty dream. That's your spirit. 
Your spirit's in the presence of God saying, this is what I'm made for. This is where I find joy and fulfillment. And, and, the, and the Sunday morning worship is not meant to carry you through the week. It's meant to be a catalyst that will inspire you to get on your knees before God when you go home and say, Lord, I want to maintain this fullness Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and come back and see another dimension of worship because we come ready to worship you. That's for the work of the Spirit in our hearts. That's the gloriousness of what he's called us to. That's your spirit calling to the Lord. What did Jesus say? He said, your spirit is so willing. Oh, your spirit longs for my presence. But the flesh is weak. He didn't say the flesh is stronger. The flesh is weak. So what? Take control of your flesh and your spirit will rise up. You see, God's primary joy is not your productivity. His primary joy is not whatever Christian lifestyle you've mapped out. His primary joy is your desire and your willingness to spend time in his presence. That's his joy. You can have your kids buy you something every week. doesn't compare if they're not spending time with you. You want them. The Father's the same way with us. I was sitting here a couple days ago. I just, last few weeks, been enjoying some just early quiet time in the, in the sanctuary here, worshiping the Lord, just times of solitude. And as I was worshiping the Lord, the, I don't know, the Holy Spirit, but the thought just kind of came to my mind. I thought, Lord, it's amazing. I'm sitting here with you. It's quiet. There's no one around, just solitude, just worshiping you. And, Lord, I just realized that prayer is not about me trying to carve some time out for you. Prayer is the wonder that you would carve out time for me, that you would meet me, that when I bow my heart, that when I quiet my soul, when I allow all that business to get flushed away, that, Lord, you come and you minister to me and we commune. You realize, man, it's not a discipline. It is an absolute delight. You see, all God asks of me is that I position my spirit to move with his spirit. That's all he asks. It's not striving, it's just positioning myself. You say, well, Paul, how in the world do you do that in real life? Very simple. We have to learn the value of quieting ourselves. We have to learn to stop allowing ourselves to be hurried so much. Remember those snow globes? My grandmother used to have those. She used to have a lot of tacky stuff in her front room. And we had two grandmothers. One grandmother was the roly-poly apple pie, you know, oh, good to see you, Nana. The other one was stale cookies, played bingo, you know. Uh, anyway, I won't go beyond that. I love her to death, taught me how to play crib. I just, just a great lady. Uh, we used to come at Christmas time. You remember those black licorices, all the like yellow ones and blue ones and red ones? Is that what they're called? All sorts. There you go. I didn't know until I was an adult that they didn't come with dust on them. I had no idea as a kid. Every time we went to my grandmother, she had them out for weeks before Christmas, and they were just covered with dust. We'd just wipe it off and eat our candy. Well, that was, my, that was my grandmother. She had a snow globe. But, you know, but that's the way we can be. When our spirit isn't in the proper place, what happens because of our emotions and our feelings and our physical desires, it's just like shaking that snow globe. But in that confusion, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. The psalmist said this, This is why I wait upon you, expecting your breakthrough. For your word brings me hope. You see, again, if you're quiet and declutter, the Lord breaks through. He comes and visits you. Some refer to that lingering in God's presence as soaking. You've probably heard the expression before, just soaking in the presence of God. And all that means is once you learn to quiet your heart before God, what does he do? The Holy Spirit begins to fill the tank of your spirit. And friends, you need to do that every day. 
Every single day we need that time with the Lord so we can draw on him and draw on that inner strength and peace at any time through the day. Because if you want the Lord to use you, you've got to understand, you don't know when stuff's going to pop up. You don't know when people are going to intersect your day. You don't know what the Lord has in store. So you've got to stay full, stay connected, and he will use you anytime. In Mark chapter 9, there's a wonderful story of a father who's looking for Jesus. He heard he's going to be in a certain region, and so, so he went looking for him. He had a son who was, who was tormented by an evil spirit, and so he thought, if I can just get to Jesus, my son will be okay. So he, we don't know how far he traveled, but he finally gets there one day, and he, he sees that Jesus isn't there. Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they're up in a mountain. We call it the transfiguration experience, but Jesus isn't there at the moment. So he sees these other nine disciples, so he's encouraged. I mean, Jesus isn't there, he reasons, but hey, no big deal. His disciples are here, right? They walk with Jesus. They can obviously do what Jesus can do, right? And the reality is they could. Because you remember the time when Jesus commissioned the disciples, some 70 of them, and said, go everywhere and do this and that. And they came back so excited. They said, oh, Lord, you won't believe it. And, of course, he would. He was there with them. But you won't believe it. You know, we healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, all that kind of stuff. They were so excited. So they had had that experience before. So they come to the disciples, and this time the disciples couldn't do it. Father's totally disheartened. A little while later, Jesus shows up. Jesus says, what's going on? The father comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I came looking for you because my boy has been tormented by an evil spirit, but your disciples couldn't do anything. Can you? You see what's happened? You see, Jesus wasn't discredited by anything he did or did not do. He was discredited by what the disciples could not do. And the fact is, they could do it. Because they'd done it before, plus Jesus said to them on many occasions, the things I do, you can do too. Even greater things one day you will do. And so Jesus basically cuts through it all and says, bring the boy to me. He ministers to the boy. Instantly the boy is set free. The crowd goes their way. Everybody is happy. Well, the disciples are a little bit baffled. Because they came to Jesus after and they said, Lord, we don't quite understand. How come we could not drive out the evil spirit? They were genuinely baffled because they had done it before. I can imagine them kind of thinking, if you elaborate on that, Jesus, we, we brought him up, uh, okay, we, we did everything that Dan Moeller taught us to do, you know, we brought him up, and we said this word, we prayed three times to make sure, and nothing happened, and whatever the formula may be, and Jesus didn't understand. He said, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting. What does that mean? It means there are certain kinds of things that you can deal with through confession, through prayer. But there are other things, oftentimes spiritual strongholds, but there are other things, Jesus says, that are only going to be dislodged when somebody finally steps up to the plate with fasting. That's the only way it's going to change. Friends, there are certain things in your own life, certain things in your family, certain things in, in whatever is close to you, pertains to you, your workplace, certain things of the congregation in this church, in this city, that are only going to change when prayer is joined with fasting. And as Jesus proved... When you deal with the flesh and the devil, it doesn't have to be some long, drawn-out affair. It's not about running away for three days and saying, oh, wait, I'll come back, I'll go fast and pray for three days. It's not how it works. He says you can deal with these things quickly if you practice the lifestyle of prayer and fasting. A number of years ago, I believe he's passed away a few years ago, but we had a superintendent by the name of James McKnight, a wonderful man of God. And James once shared, I remember years ago, he shared that he had... Um, he had uh, incorporated into his life fasting as a young man all through his ministry years. And his life really showed it. His ministry, the blessing of God, the anointing on his life really showed. But he, he lived a life of fasting and prayer. But this is what he did. He said, from an early age, I decided I'm going to incorporate fasting in my life in a way that builds me, that grows me. So he said, what I've done all my life is 
one day a week I fast. In this case, it was a Wednesday. He said, every Wednesday I fast. Once a week, every Wednesday. At the end of each month, so four weeks have gone by now, at the end of each month, I change that one day into three days. So I fast Wednesday to Friday. Make sense? Right? You with me? One day a week. Every Wednesday, the last week of the month is three days. The last week of the quarter, so when three months go by, I take that fast from three days and extend it to five days. So one day, three days, five days. So over 365 days in the course of the year, he would fast 84 days of that time. Now, if I was to say, do you go fast 84 days? Oh, I could never do that. But you can fast 84 days over a period of a year. That was his discipline, and once again, it showed. There are two kinds of fast essentially mentioned in the scriptures. The first is a chosen fast. Isaiah 58, the Lord says, this is the fast I've chosen for you. And basically what that is, it's a season where God calls on you to go to fasting. Go to fasting because of something specific he wants you to do, and he knows that you need the extra firepower in this situation. As an individual or a church, you need the firepower that will only come when you join fasting to prayer. And so that's called a chosen fast. But in order for you to respond to a chosen fast, you have to begin to incorporate in your life what I call a cultivated fast. And a cultivated fast is where you choose of your own free will with the Holy Spirit's help to work some spiritual muscle in you so that you are used to fasting so that whenever the Lord calls you to a chosen fast, you're able to respond. Does that make sense? If I say, hey, let's go run 5K, you say, I can't do that. Probably a lot of us couldn't, right? But if I say, hey, let's meet next month. We're going to run 5K. All you got to do is start practicing, right? And then the month, you're ready to run 5K. The same is true in the spiritual discipline. So there are things the Lord wants to partner with him about for breakthrough, but we need to learn how to cultivate the fast. That kind of prayer and fasting was a regular part of Jesus' life. And you know what? He assumed it was going to be a regular part of our lives too because Jesus didn't say to his disciples, if you fast. What did he say? When you fast, it's a regular part of your life, he says. And so that's why he was never caught off guard because Jesus, unlike the disciples, didn't rely on last time, his last experience, he relied on the present work of the Holy Spirit in his life through intimacy in prayer and fasting. You see, the father brought the boy to the disciples, and what did they do? They did everything they did last time. And it might have been some time ago, because now they've been with Jesus for a while, sitting back, watching Jesus do all the heavy lifting. Right? Last time. That's what they depended on. But it wasn't enough. Because this time, Jesus points out that the power is not in the formula. The power is in the present flow of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's in a pure life that's rightly aligned to God through regular seasons of fasting and prayer. Fasting, fasting is God's gift to help you stay properly aligned so that your spirit is prominent and the Lord is able to fill you with power and peace and life and hope over your entire being. How many up for that? Anybody up for that? Anybody up for kind of getting realigned, making sure you're in the right place? I see our time is going. I'm going to give you this quick. You may say, well, Paul, how do you fast or how do you begin to fast? I'm going to scare you when I say five things, but they are fast. Okay? Number one. Okay, if you're taking notes at all, if you're saying, Pastor, yeah, I need to get on board with this. Number one, you need to decide your objective. Why are you fasting? What is the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart? Is it for guidance? Is it for spiritual renewal? Is it for healing? Maybe a difficult situation. What is your objective? It's important to have focus. It might just be to draw close to the Lord. Number two, decide your commitment. How long are you going to fast? Is it going to be for one meal? If you're just starting, just start with a meal. Is it going to be for a day, three days, three weeks, or longer, whatever it may be? 
But start slow and resolve to grow in the discipline and the benefits of fasting. I say this with all kindness. I say it tongue-in-cheek, but I'm serious about this. Don't choose fasts that give you an excuse to eat. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear it all the time. Yeah, I'm fasting sugar. I'm fasting white flour. I'm fasting donuts. I'm fasting coffee, you know, whatever. I mean, there are times for that. Even the Daniel fast. The Daniel fast is fine once in a while, okay, or different variations of that. But I think what's important to understand is that if I want to grow in what Jesus is doing, I need to model after what Jesus modeled. He's my example. And these other fasts, again, variations, they're fine once in a while. But I really need to bite the bullet and understand I've not been called to coddle the flesh. I've been called to crucify the flesh. You see, when the Lord has called me to a fast, the enemy will come and say, oh, you can fast, you can fast, but don't go overboard. You know, I mean, everybody knows if you don't eat in five days, you're dead. Right? If you don't drink in three days, you're dead. You haven't heard all that nonsense, right? We know it's not true. But the enemy will come with all these, you know, second, you know, plan B. And the Lord is saying, no, I want you to fast. I want you to cut food out of your life. I want you to go with water, juice for a few days, few weeks, whatever it may be. I want you to seek after me. You begin to do that. You begin to discover some of the things that the Lord has for you. Number three, prepare a schedule. If you're going to have maximum spiritual benefit, decide in advance what times you're going to set aside for scripture reading, listening, prayer, journaling, all that kind of stuff. For example, here's, here's something you can use. In the morning, rise a little earlier, meditate on the word of God, just quiet your heart, maybe just a half hour early, whatever, whatever you feel is needed. And what that does is it gets you focused. You see, if you're planning to fast, let's say for three days, if you're planning to fast but you don't spend time until later on in the night with the Lord, what you're going to find is through the whole day when you have temptation to break your fast, you're going to be fighting in the flesh. If you start your morning off, even 15 minutes, 20 minutes, get aligned, soak in the presence of the Lord for a few moments, you get centered, and you're able to resist that weakness through the course of the day. At lunchtime, if you're at work, not a problem. You can read God's word in the lunchroom, in your car. You can go for a short prayer walk. And again, it maintains your focus, your sense of purpose, and the abiding presence of the Lord. And then in the evening, of course, I really encourage you just to lock into unhurried time with the Lord, whatever that requires. Uh, cut out TV, maybe, or just avoid TV initially for a couple hours. I mean, you can still watch it at night. It's not a bad thing. But maybe avoid things like that or other distractions and just be alone with the Lord. Also, you might want to plan to take a couple of books with you during your time of fasting on a particular theme that you want to relate to, that you want to uh, focus on in your fast. If you're doing a prolonged fast, then you want to plan when and what you're going to drink. Water and juice normally, and sometimes you can add some broth as you get later on into that time after a week or two, whatever, whatever you feel. And please accept this fact. That when you choose to fast, there will always be a meeting or a dinner or a gathering of some kind that is going to give you an excuse to break your fast. I have dear, dear friends, lovely, godly people, a wonderful potluck that just happened to be three or four days into my fast. Okay, well, it's no big deal. If you decide you're going to fast, you're among Christian people. And by the way, if you tell somebody you're fasting, you don't lose your blessing. Okay, Jesus was talking about hypocrisy and going around, oh, like a male, miserable I am. No, there should still be a spring in your step. Wash your face, live through your day. But if you're among believers, you ought to be able to say, ah, hey, great, man, love to come over and I'm fasting. So I'll sit down, have a cup of tea with you, whatever it may be. Okay, it's no big deal. But understand that these things are always going to be there. You just simply either have to decline the invitation or go after the meal or go during the meal and sit there and enjoy and just test your faith. It's really encouraging. Two last things quickly. Is any of this helpful, by the way? Two or three of you? Okay, I'll just talk to you. <laughs> last two things. Prepare yourself physically. Prepare yourself physically. What I mean by that is don't Mardi Gras. 
Don't binge eat the day before. Okay? If you're planning to start a fast, then I encourage you work into it. What I mean by that is a couple days ahead, if you're a coffee drinker or caffeine, sugar, just let that stuff kind of get out of your system a little bit. Don't fill your stomach with food the day before because what you'll discover the day you start to fast, your stomach is grumbling and still digesting the food and headaches will hit you. And you, I've heard people say, oh, I can't fast, I get headaches. We all get headaches because we eat lousy diets. That's all it is. It's just your body detoxing. Let it happen. Let your system get cleaned out and then begin to move into what the Lord has for you to discover that the, that begins to take over. And finally, prepare yourself spiritually. Prepare yourself for spiritual warfare. The devil will do everything he can to stop you from fasting. Why? Because he knows that this kind of prayer breaks his strongholds. It reveals his schemes. It shows you where he has strongholds in your life and what he's, what's going on around you, and he'll actually bring deliverance. I won't get into the length. The story can be lengthy, but just really quickly, a dear pastor friend, his daughter was going through a rebellious time. He felt like he lost her. She'd been months just rebellious, cold toward them, whatever. He just went into a season of fasting and prayer. When he was fasting one day, many days into his fasting and prayer, the Lord showed him a dream and a vision, and in that he saw his daughter pinned up against a tree with these three wolves just burying their teeth, and she was petrified. And he realized that everything that she was doing was a manifestation of the fears and the work of the enemy in her heart. And in prayer, on his knees, in the bedroom, he went to prayer, and he began to bind every single one of them. He began to, to, to drive them away in the realm of the spirit until they fled. And this is no exaggeration. He got off his knees. He walked out of his bedroom door. As he walked down the closet, his daughter's whose bedroom was there, her door opened. She came into the, into the hallway, and she fell into, into his arms and said, Daddy, I'm so sorry. It was broken in the spirit. Those are the weapons. I'm not talking about some magic formula. Be led by the Holy Spirit. But that is exactly the power that is found in fasting and prayer. So bring your struggles, your headaches, your hunger, all that stuff to the Lord, and he will give you grace until your hunger of your spirit overtakes the hunger of your body, and you will be filled. The Bible promises, last scripture, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's not just talking about here in this group. He's talking about in your life where the Spirit of the Lord has dominance, there is freedom in your life in every part of your body. And he makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious presence. I promise you, my friends, if you will make fasting and prayer a regular part of your walk with the Lord, the Holy Spirit will change you. And you know what? You'll like it. You'll really like it. It's an awesome thing. The Lord wants us to live life to the full, and he's given us every weapon we need to be free and to stand in the freedom for which we've been set free and to never be entangled again in the flesh, in the mind, in the emotions. Amen? To be free indeed. So why? So the people of God can finally get on with ministry. What they're called to do. We're not called to live like everyone else. Not, like, not that we're better, but people who don't need Christ, don't know Christ, need him, and they need to see that we have him. And if we live like we don't have him or he makes no difference, then why would they want him? Why would they want him? I got better things to do on a Sunday morning. Anybody else? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> right? We wouldn't mind sleeping in. We wouldn't mind playing around round of golf. We wouldn't mind going to the campground. I know some Christians still do that. You know, we're here in the house of God because we know Jesus. And we worship him because he's changed our lives. That's what it's all about. Amen. I'm going to do two things. I'm not talking more, but this is how it's going to work. 
I just felt this morning to close in worship. And very simply, where you are, if you can just relate this morning and say, oh, Lord, yeah, that's me. Like, my spirit's down here. Like, you've made me for up here. And I, ah, I just see areas where my, my physical drives or my emotions, whatever, get the best of me. And, oh, Lord, I want to be free. I just invite you just to reach out to the Lord and say, Lord, I confess. I renounce what I've done. And I just ask you to restore me. Cleanse me and restore me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, Lord. And he'll do that right where you are. You just need to confess and let, invite the Lord. He will come. He'll break through. And he'll lift your spirit up. He'll touch you afresh. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you say, Pastor, I can relate to that picture because I, I feel God's presence here. But I know. I know my life, my choices, what I'm in right now, my marriage, whatever, just the way I behave, the way I interact. I know it's my emotions that have control. It's my physical body that has control that gets me into trouble. I really need the power of God. I really need my spirit to come alive to God. Then I'm going to invite you this morning just to come, and we want to pray with you. The Lord will cleanse you of your sin if you confess your sin, and you can be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, and you can leave here transformed and filled with his power, his ability to live a life that you could never imagine in intimacy with him and freedom.